She's a doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Dobek, and she's a dietitian. Hey, I'm Hannah Schuyler, and together we are the Doctor-Dietitian Dr. Collab. Wow, so we are going to be going on to some long-term complications that can happen after gastric bypass, after sleeve gastrectomy, and even after some maybe lesser done procedures at this time, like the lap band or even the vertical banded gastroplasty Ooh. or stomach stapling. So we're going to go back into the history books of bariatric surgery, and we're going to talk about all of the considerations that could potentially happen, and most importantly, how to identify them and seek treatment. So we're going to start off with the sleeve. All right. So we're going to talk about when things are going great, you're losing weight, you're feeling pretty good, and all of a sudden you feel like, man, I'm getting some acid reflux. Oh. This is legit. Hannah, I know in your experience, have you had patients who've come back, who've been struggling with some regurgitation, kind of some burning? What are they telling you after that sleeve sometimes? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people go through like a honeymoon phase after because maybe they had some, some GERD before, some reflux before, and then they're like, it's great. Everything's done. And now they're like, oh, no. And it's like... It's the same symptoms that anybody would have that has any kind of reflux. Um, so you're going to get that kind of burning sensation, like that that like kind of feeling like you need to vomit or, or anything like that. Um, you know, maybe not tolerating some foods, like definitely some foods are more uh, trigger foods for them. So like I used to be able to eat this and now I just I can't or I can't get my water in because I just feel full and like I just everything's going to come up. Yeah. And that it can be something that happens again in the short term, but in the long term. And and what the trends seem to be, the symptoms, patients will say, yeah, intermittently I'd have some acid reflux type symptoms. Sometimes people are like, I don't know if you'd call it reflux, but I have to sleep more upright now. If I lay flat, I even sometimes wake up in the middle of the night. I even have um, bile that comes out of my nose, I've heard, and, mm. and they, or they'll find it in their mouth and they're choking. And it's, it's a frightening phenomenon when that happens. Or maybe patients might feel like that they're taking like omeprazole, over-the-counter Prilosec or Protonics or Tums. They're like, man, I've been eating a lot more of these lately. Or finally, they might just have a lot of um, just constant pain, burning, and all of that happening after the sleeve. And like you said, they have to avoid certain foods or else they are triggered. But the worst reflex is when they say, even with water. And that's what they'll just say, like, even with water. It doesn't matter what I'm consuming, spicy, bland water, for goodness sakes, I'm having reflux. And when that happens, we need to investigate. So when a patient comes to tell me, let's say they're two, three years post-op from sleeve. If they're coming back with, it'll say, you know, having some issues, I know without a doubt that there's no patients that just want to randomly stop by to say hi. Maybe you do. Hi, guys. You can always just hit me up on Instagram or find us there. You don't have to do a virtual um, visit. But if they're coming and they're saying that, I know that eh, something's probably up here. And yeah. that can be that can be challenging. 
Yeah. And and what is there like a percentage of patients that you find with the sleeve that are coming back with those symptoms? So the hardest thing for it whenever we're even let's back it up to when they're determining what is their original procedure, whether they go with the gastric bypass or they pick the sleeve. I do tell people, listen, if you have any reflux at all right now, or if you know you have a hiatal hernia, and that is when your stomach, which should be below your diaphragm in your abdomen, has actually herniated or gone above your diaphragm and is now residing in your chest. So if that were to happen, I would say, listen, save yourself some potential misery down the road. Go with the gastric bypass. It's going to be the best one for it. In fact, even when you wake up in the recovery room, the way that your saliva or spit goes down is going to be even like noticeable mm. after the bypass. Now, if, um, if a patient is somebody that says, you know, I really, really want the sleeve, it's really not that bad, and we embark on it, then yes, there is a risk that the reflux could get worse with time. It could um, be new onset reflux, or sometimes the weight, your weight, if it's like that central distribution to your weight, it might be, think about being pregnant. That pressure puts pressure on that sleeve's stomach, and that can even cause there to be regurgitation. But as you lose weight, you might see the weight, the, the with the weight loss, you might see the acid reflux go away. So it's hard to say like if it'll happen, new onset, worsening or improvement even. So yeah. it's, it's a tricky situation. So if somebody tells us that, what I typically do is one of two things. One, usually I start with something called an upper GI swallow study. So that's when a patient will drink contrast and then they'll shoot an x-ray live. And that x-ray, we can see if the contrast is going down the direction it should. Is it sitting there and regurgitating or refluxing back up? Is it uh, sitting in the stomach for too long? So you can you can even assess the anatomy or the size of the sleeve stomach with that study. I really like it um, because it, it they'll, they'll, sometimes the radiologist will come back and say severe gastroesophageal reflux disease. There's even reflux of contrast all the way back up to the, the upper third of the esophagus. So wow. that means that is a very dangerous situation because you could aspirate. In other words, it comes all the way back up and it goes down the wrong pipe and into your lungs. And that can be a really substantial thing. And besides the like, obviously the discomfort and pain, and those are all reasonable reasons to want to get to not have this anymore. But are there any other kind of like side effects from ongoing GERD besides an aspiration? Yeah, actually, there can be something in extreme cases where you start to develop First, though, step one of this would be esophagitis. So the esophagus, again, when you swallow food, you put it in your mouth, you swallow it, it goes into the tube in your chest, which will then go through the hole in the diaphragm called the hiatus and into your sleeve stomach. Now, if it is sitting there, it can actually regurgitate back up and cause esophagitis or an inflammation or an irritation of the lining of that lower portion of the esophagus. Or like I said, it could even go up higher. So esophagitis can cause a lot of pain. I mean, this think about like if you bite the inside of your mouth and it's like just raw and irritated and think about like food going past that all the time. I mean, that, that can really hurt to have a bile even because sometimes bile, which happens in the first part of the small intestine. So it goes esophagus, then into the sleeve stomach, and then into the small intestine. So the liver makes bile. It's stored in the gallbladder. If you still have one, that drips down into the common bile ducts, and it goes into the first part of the small intestine. If it goes there, and now it's sitting there, and you have bile acid, reflux gastritis, that even causes esophagitis, ouch. Mm. 
Unfortunately, the only medical treatment that you can try to fix do for that is something called caraphate, which you it's a pain in the butt because you got to take one gram four times a day. The liquid form it's more convenient. It's really expensive. So a lot of times we tell you to get a tablet of that, crush it up, mix it with a little bit of water until it's like a slushy consistency. And that can somewhat coat the lining to help you prevent that that backwash. But a lot of times you need to go for a revision. Now, to answer your question further, in extreme cases of esophagitis, it can actually progress to something called Barrett's esophagus. And Barrett's esophagus is a precancerous condition. That means the lining is actually changing into more of a stomach lining. And if that happens, you could actually advance and go into full-on adenocarcinoma. So if a patient before surgery has known Barrett's esophagus, I will not do a sleeve because of the risk that that could actually worsen and even progress. The gastric bypass is the only surgery procedure that will actually prevent cancer in in, in Barrett's esophagus. Wow. Wow. That's pretty... uh... Pretty interesting to think that like that's the, the side effects that we don't think about from these kinds of surgeries of like, yeah, we could potentially present like this very specific cancer in the in the esophagus. Yeah, it, it's it's no joke, and and then there's also like I said the hiatal hernia. So sometimes if you see that the stomach it could be like a little there's different grades. There's four grades of these, and the first one is just a little sliding hernia, and then there's type three parasophageal hernias, which is where the fundus of the stomach, if this is before surgery and you still have the fundus, the fundus is removed with the sleeve, but that can actually herniate up through the diaphragm hiatus. And that causes, think about that's why it's called heartburn because your stomach again is now up in your chest next to your heart. And that's like causing all this churn and burn and irritation. And so you're like, am I having a heart attack? It can hurt that bad that there's a lot of people who think I'm having a heart attack, but in reality, it's actually just heartburn. I remember like, I, I don't generally get heartburn, but like the one time I had it really bad, I was on antibiotics for like a, a sinus infection or something. So it wrecked my whole gut. And I was working, I worked at a zoo, super random, we'll go into that later, but uh, I worked <laughs> at an alligator zoo. And I remember walking around in the Florida sun and Ugh. like, I was like 23, I was like right out of college. And I thought I was dying. I mean, I yeah. was like, I was legitimately concerned. And I like, Finally figured out. I was like, okay, okay. I've been on these antibiotics. Like, you know, just have my nutrition degree. Like, whatever. So I was like, okay, what could this be? And then I was like, it's probably heartburn. Like, you're not dying. But it, I like still remember, you know, some years later, like how painful that is. So the idea of people walking around with that constantly mm-hmm. or regularly, like. Oh, that's in, that's intense. It's super intense. When I was pregnant, I had so much reflux, and everybody like, "Oh, your baby will have curly hair." I'm like, oh. "I'm I like white knuckling hair. Just get away from me. <laughs> this hurts so bad." So it's no joke when patients tell me that. Like, it's literally ruining my life. There's been patients who will say, you know, these are extreme examples. So don't freak. Like, if you yeah. have a sleeve that you're going to be white knuckling it and all of that at all times, you might have an, the episode that Hannah had when she was on antibiotics, for example. Um, but sometimes it can be very, very significant and very frequent. And that's what tends to bring people in. I can handle one episode here and there, but then it's like, okay, now it's becoming daily. Now I'm eating, I'm I'm like eating Tums. I'm taking meds twice a day over what the prescription says I should be doing. And that's when it becomes like, oh, I probably should seek medical care. One extreme example I saw once, this is the worst case I've ever seen in my career. And I've done over 4,000 bariatric surgeries. And this woman, this was years ago when I was still in Baltimore. She had horrific chest pain, and it was to the point where they did 
every study on her heart that you can imagine, including they biopsied her heart because they're like, there must be like, there must be something that this woman couldn't even function. Then somehow we finally, they put us in touch with her and we got an upper GI and her whole sleeve was like in her chest. And so that was, um, that was an extreme example. And then Pull it back down, tighten the diaphragm or the hiatus around that, put the stomach where it should be in the abdomen, and then voila. But in addition, you can't just fix that because it's going to keep be. It's high pressure. It's high pressure. It, it's, it's because the end of the stomach, it has something called the pylorus, which after you consume food or drink, once that goes into the stomach, that closes. That allows time for stomach juices to kind of mix up with the food. It opens, things go forward, in theory, into the small intestine. Well, if that's closed, the issue is you can get some pressure up the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So you get some regurgitation, some reflux, some real significant heartburn. And so just by repairing a hiatal hernia, people say, well, can't you just resleeve me? No, 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 no. You have to be able to bypass the pylorus. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't need, if it was this substantial, and there was evidence either on upper GI swallow study or the other study I alluded to is an upper endoscopy where a gastroenterologist typically will go down with a camera scope and look. And if they can see too, if there's a hernia, if there's uh, any of this esophagitis, et cetera. And if they see that, we need to do a revision. Got it. And from a a lifestyle, from what I recommend to people, because obviously there's you know, we maybe we're going through this process of like getting to a revision. And so, you know, it's not not just going to happen the next day. It's not going to show up and happen the next day or something like that. So there's lifestyle intervention. Like you've mentioned, of course, medication. And that's usually the biggest management. But like avoiding those trigger foods, sleeping with the head of bed elevated to yes. some degree. Or if you need a recline, some people get to where they sleep better in like a recliner versus the bed because it just helps keep everything moving down. You know, not eating within two hours of laying down. So if you think about even breakfast or lunch, if you're somebody that like goes and takes a nap or something in the afternoon after lunch, like wait at least two hours, stay upright, you know, avoiding the spicy foods, trigger foods like chocolate, coffee, caffeine. Um, Of course, like if you're, you know, don't want to drink water at the same time that you're eating, which obviously we want you to do anyway as a, as a bariatric patient, but maybe you've started slipping in that and you've been drinking with your meal. So separating out that that drinking time movement, that's one that people forget about too. Like keep your gut moving, mm-hmm. like twisty turny. That helps with constipation too. But like walking, twisting your body, like just keeps everything kind of moving along. We want to keep everything going in the right direction and not like put, like you said, pushing up. Ooh, I know. So again, many people actually have improvement of Mm -hmm. their acid reflux. Some never had it, never got it, never will. And their hiatuses are locked around that, uh, that lower part of the esophagus, which is intra-abdominal perfection. So it's, it's a tough thing. But when you're asking me about statistics, about 1 in 20 or 5% of all of the sleeves that I do or that anybody does, end up all the sleeves end up getting a surgical revision to a gastric bypass. So people will ask, like, well, like, how do you do that? The difference is not much. So if you understand the regular gastric bypass and go back to our bariatric basics podcast, we talk about the gastric bypass there. We um, and there's great pictures and great ways to look at it. I would strongly suggest Googling it. But when you do that, I'm, I'm not there's remember with the sleeve, 80 percent of the stomach is removed. So that part's no longer there. So what I'm bypassing is just a smaller part of that, that last part of the stomach. So the stomach pouch is there. Now, once in a while, I will do a sleeve to bypass revision 
and it might be for maybe the weight loss wasn't where it should be. I get in there and my gosh, sometimes I see these sleeves. Never mind. I just want to make sure, you know, these are not my sleeves that are so wide. Mm. And I do think that it happens, especially if you had the sleeve done over 10 years ago, because we as a society, this was still a, this is a fairly new procedure. This is like one of the newest ones. And we didn't know how big to make it. So we didn't know like that perfect Goldilocks sizing tube. So that new slave stomach wasn't too big, but it wasn't too tight or too narrowed. And so with that, we ended up, um, I think that some surgeons just really made them too big. They were way too conservative and they didn't remove enough stomach. And ultimately you have these really wide sleeves that I end up having to re-sleeve the pouch and then convert them to a bypass. I actually did that procedure just yesterday. So, um, and that was one of the, it almost looked like the patient never had a sleeve. It was just just such a shame because I think that sometimes, and it's not because she stretched it out. Please let me set the record straight. It is because technically speaking, the original operation was not done what I would consider like according to the right scale. Like I do this over a 36 French sizing tube. And this thing, I have no idea. It was just so, so wide. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I think she's going to do phenomenal with her weight loss. Uh, yeah. And then sometimes um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge you guys. Um, when you're on Instagram and you're looking at, you know, and I just wanted this also to be for the record. I'm the one that started to blow up the stomachs. That was me about five, seven <laughs> years ago. And now all surgeons across the world, I do take, I take it. I'm flattered by it. But when you see some surgeons blow up it, I want you to look at their staple line. That staple line should be a perfect curve. But I see a lot of like corkscrews. And I'm almost like, why are you posting that? I don't like, I'm like zooming in. I'm like looking at their staple line. So the corkscrew can actually cause you to have a lot of more reflux and a lot of hard um, hardship even in the early post-op period. Because it's almost like um, causing almost like a partial outlet obstruction because it's like kinking it because of the way it's taking this, you know, this corkscrew formation. Huh. Offline, I won't tell you the surgeons. I'm going to show you some pictures offline. Yeah. Uh, we, we're not going to out anybody here, but zoom in on those pictures of these <laughs> surgeons. Choose wisely. Choose by their Instagram reels if they have blown up a stomach. You look in there. You can always ask me too, and I'll tell you. I'll be very yeah. candid with you. So, all right. Well, good to know. We're definitely looking forward because now I'm like just I'm like trying to picture what that like corkscrew looks like. So very intrigued to see that. Um, okay, so that's one of the the complications, kind of in the longer term, generally with the sleeve, is that reflux. Um, any other longer term complications that are more specific to the sleeve? So other than the reflux, um, other ones that are more specific to the sleeve, there's not many. Um, This is more um, sleeve bypass band, pretty much whatever weight loss surgery you do, because you will be consuming less amounts of food. That means potentially less nutrients. No matter what, you need to stay on a multivitamin, and that multivitamin needs to have thymine, which is vitamin B1, folic acid, and iron. So you'll stay on all of those and you will take at least two hours later, you will take a calcium citrate and you'll take three doses of that. And those are also, all those three doses are separated by at least two hours. So you'll take those things that'll be four times in a day. So if you're not compliant with those recommendations or adherent to them, you could develop nutritional deficiencies from that. But otherwise, um, long-term, usually you'll be able to maintain your 
your weight loss and you're going to have um, better active years, better quality of life, longer life, uh, maintain that BMI reduction. And yes, the sleeve and the bypass truly add years onto your life too. So there's lots of published studies that show that. Well, I think it's not just years, but it's like good years. Yes. You know, it's a lot of times people kind of come into like their second second coming of like, oh my gosh, I'm I get to relive all of this. Or I get to do this for the first time because I couldn't do it before. Absolutely. No doubt. So with those vitamin deficiencies, what are like some of the things for people? Maybe they have not been doing well with their vitamins or maybe they, you know, didn't know that they needed to be on vitamins. A lot of people tend to think that it's like they're like one year of the vitamins and then they're done. And it's like, no, this is long term. So somebody who's maybe not been able to take the vitamins for whatever reason, what are maybe some symptoms that they could look for or or what to look for for deficiencies? So, I mean, you can absolutely answer a lot of these too. The big one is, um, I think one of the scariest ones is vitamin B1, mm-hmm. is that dry berry berry there's been more in the bariatric community, some light shed on this, but this is significant. If you start to get numbness and tingling of your extremities, sort of like a neuropathy, and it progresses, and sometimes patients are like, I'm having a hard time walking and moving, it can progress to irreversible, irreversible loss of the ability to even stand and walk in extreme cases. Mm -hmm. It is no joke. So if you get to be that far down the road, eeks, you know, we we got a course correct and quick because that can be a really rapidly progressive um, deficiency. So at the first sign of your any yes. numbness and tingling in your fingers or toes, unless it's like cold outside. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the first sign, like that's a great time to like reach out to your program and they can check the lab. They can also just try adding in some thiamine. You know, again, if you haven't been taking your vitamin, get back in it. But then there's also supplemental thiamine you can take. I think it's 100 yes. a day. Um, and thiamine, the great thing about a B vitamin, so here's our nerd moment for today. Um, B vitamins are what's called water soluble. Mm. So they don't um, they don't build up in your in your body if you have an excess amount of them. Basically, you're going to pee out any excess. Uh, same with any of our B vitamins. Now, if you're talking about A, D, E, or K, those are our fat soluble vitamins. Those are ones you can actually have toxic levels of, which vitamin D is one that's interesting because mm. so many people are vitamin D yes. deficient. And then they get put on these. So the doctor, they take their blood. You know, it's really commonly done with primary care. They check it. They put them on these huge doses of vitamin D that is supposed to be like an eight or 12-week course. You'll take that 5,000 IU weekly for a period of time. At the end of that, they're supposed to check your blood and see if you need what you need to do, if you need to continue on with that high dose loading dose or if you need to switch to a daily. Um, and a lot of people I find, they're like, yeah, I just take this one once a week. I've been doing it for two years. Mm. It's oh, like, my God. That's a lot of vitamin D. Yeah, it's D. like, what? Okay. So, you know, looking at that and a lot of people ask, do I need to be on additional vitamin D? You know, I'm on maybe 2,000 a day right now. And I think that's when it's it's important to, like, take note of what's in your other other things that you're yes. taking. Does your multivitamin, it's it's going to have vitamin D in it. Your calcium should have vitamin D in it as well. So you may be getting that 2,000 IUs of vitamin D daily from the things you're already taking, and we don't want to then overload you with more of it because, again, it, there can be too high of levels. It's not super common, um, but seeing it in some people, all of a sudden, like their vitamin D is like so high. Yeah. You know, even with that, I will tell you they're oh. – I want to say there's hardly been any times in my career. So the normal range goes from 30 to 100. Mm -hmm. I have seen many patients who have a range of 20 
to 30. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the ones that I'll just tell them, take like an over-the-counter soft gel, like you said, 2,000 to upwards of 5,000 international units. I've seen people in the teens and the single-digit ones are the ones that are like, hello, come on, let's go. Yeah. They need the 50,000 unit, the prescription strength, the weekly dose, the big big time dose. That's important. But I haven't really seen too many patients be able to achieve an actual high vitamin D. I've seen high B12 as in greater than 2000. And I just tell them that's just you, you know, having very expensive urine. You yeah. know, you're just like peeing that whole thing out. Yeah. And um, I have, I'm trying to think of some Oh, another big one is secondary hyperparathyroidism. Mm -hmm. And this is when the way we measure your calcium intake is not by calcium because it would have to be extraordinarily extreme for it to show up in a basic chemistry or in a complete metabolic profile, a CMP lab set. But when you see a PTH, parathyroid hormone, if that is high, that means your body is revving up as hard as it can its parathyroid to try to make its own kind of calcium or try to get more calcium because it's low. So if you see a super high PTH, that means your calcium is too low. And 99% of the time, it's like, are you taking your calcium? No, I'm not. Yeah. And that could be a significant thing too. Yeah. Yeah. I dealt with that in my past life. Lots of PTH conversations. I thought I was done with it. And then I show up and they're like, so PTH, we have to look up. I was like, oh gosh. I know. Tell them what you did in your past life. So I was dialysis dietitian. And that is something that is regulated by the kidneys. It's with the phosphorus, the calcium, the PTH, they're all intermingled with each other. And uh, in dialysis patients, it can get it can get really bad to where the gland that actually produces the PTH, the, para, para, the parathyroid gland, actually becomes what's called hyperplasic. So the, the cells actually get bigger and they eventually potentially need surgical intervention, mm. um, a parathyroidectomy, which is, you know, I definitely Terrible. had some oh. patients. And it, it it's amazing what happens same with them with their blood work when you do all of that. It's, you know, I think it's really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's one of those ones that you've probably never heard of PTH. And then people are like, well, I take Synthroid. And I'm like, well, that's your thyroid. Yes, yes, This yes. is your parathyroid, which means next to it. So yes. it's in the same spot. It's up in your throat. Um, yep. It's where the gland is. Exactly. And it's very important to note that you want to take calcium citrate. Yes. So not carbonate, not gluconate, not phosphate, but calcium citrate. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on three times a day versus twice a day? I need to do more research on it, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I, you know, I always think of when we uh, think of these really tiny little stomachs and how they can dissolve and I absorb know. things It just to me, it's like, just spread it out a little bit. I know it's inconvenient. And if it gets to a point where we find there's, yeah, we can do twice a day or, um, you know, some other dose. I've seen some vitamin companies that are coming out with a type that can be taken with iron and they don't compete with each other. And I'm like, I just don't know know. the research about, you know, like, I, I, you know, it's just so hard to make those recommendations when we have kind of the tried and true ones that it's like, well, we know that this works and we'll keep an eye on the other ones, I would say. And what about another big um, deficiency is actually iron, iron deficiency, Mm -hmm. anemia. What do you what do you recommend for that? And how can they get some food sources that are more rich in iron? Yeah. So iron, of course, taking your your vitamin. Yes. The trouble with especially with replenishing a low iron 
the food isn't always like as much as we tout it as like a great source. Like you have to eat a decent amount of it. You know, you'll hear people talk about spinach is such a great source of iron. I'm like, right. do you know how much spinach you have to yeah, eat? Seriously, to bring um, up that hemoglobin to bring it up. <laughs> so taking the medication, sometimes there's medical intervention, depending again on the severity. And that's the other thing is we have to look at, are you mildly anemic? Is it something that's going to bounce back? You know, obviously it's more common in women because um, they are generally getting rid of more blood, you know, women who menstruate or people who menstruate. Um, so that's like more common. But yeah, with, with food, so spinach, our, um, our red meats are going to be good sources of iron. Uh, liver um, has iron, I feel, if you like it. Ooh. Um, you like it. We talked about that once, didn't we? I, I've tried. I'm oh, not, I God. don't seek it out. My dad loves liver. Really? Yeah. He was fun at your wedding, by yeah, the way. Yeah, he's a fun guy. He loves liver and onion, though. Ooh, um, interesting fun fact about Hannah's about dad. Steve. <laughs> Shout out, Steve. Um, so... But the the key with iron, though, is if you're going to try and get it from him when you're taking your supplements, making sure you have vitamin C mm. that you're taking with the iron because that helps the absorbability. Oh, yes. So, again, it's probably going to be in your multivitamin, but, like, having some, like, some fruit when you're taking your multivitamin that's going to have some good vitamin C in it, um, that can help with that absorption of iron. And then not taking your iron with your calcium. So that's important because they compete with each other for absorption. So you want to just make sure you're you're not hindering in any way that absorption of the iron. Perfect. No, I mean, great, great tips, guys. And what we're going to do, we're going to put out a a commonly needed labs after surgery. Mm -hmm. So we check people's labs at six months, one year, and then annually. If there's something that's significantly off, we'll intervene even earlier just to make sure that that deficiency has corrected itself with the additional supplementation. And we're going to make a little list that if, let's say, you had your surgery in Mexico or you traveled or you moved or you whatever, you are not around your surgeon for some reason, and your primary care physician or provider is the one that is helping you to really just manage your long-term bariatric status. Obviously, it'd be great if you could have the bariatric provider, but what we can do for you, just make it really easy, we'll tell you these are all the labs that we're looking for, and we can even make ranges that show that this is where you need to be. And for example, one, one good one is like B12. I always want, even though the normal range is like 232 to 1100 or something, I actually want our post-op patients to have vitamin B12s greater than 500. So that's just something a little bit different. And I'm going to put my geek hat on too. The reason why calcium and iron, I believe, need to be separated by at least two hours, which is really critical, although, you know, Hannah's saying that there may be some that aren't out that are out there that say you can take them. The, the reason why the conventional teaching is, especially with the bypass, the first portion of the small intestine is called the duodenum. And that duodenum is where these divalent or Fe2+, Ca2+, iron and calcium are absorbed. And so when you are bypassing that area, therefore, you're going to really need to make sure you get that iron and the calcium so that you don't get secondary hyper parathyroidism or any iron deficiency that's seen on iron studies, or even in a drop in a hemoglobin or hematocrit that may even necessitate an iron infusion. Mm-hmm. So that is through the through your vein, and that would be maybe you would need to see like a hematologist or something like that. Yeah. So I want to switch gears and I want to talk about the bypass Yeah. to tell you some of the potential complications that can happen down the road with this and what to look out for and think about. And always remember this. So two things. One is if you, some patients will ask us, should I wear a medical alert bracelet? And I would say, 
No, you don't necessarily have to. But if you were to, you can tell your friends, your family. You can even put that information on your iPhone. I don't know. if I When I, when I used to do trauma surgery as part of a general surgery residency, I wasn't like, let me look on their medic thing on the iPhone. But something to do, just verbalize this to the ones closest to you, is that you do not want, sleeve as well, you do not want a blind insertion of an NG tube, a nasogastric tube. Write that down, folks. Write Copy that t- down. No, no blind insertion. <laughs> Insertion of an NG tube. No, get that thing away from my nose, people. We don't want it. So the problem is, is that there's not much stomach there to pump out or decompress. You might have heard if you drink too much alcohol back in the day, I had to go get my stomach pumped. Well, that was putting an NG tube and just sort of trying to suck out that alcohol there. So that's a very big deal. You don't want that because what can happen is that can actually even perforate it even years later. Um, especially if you have, let's say, an ulcer in a perfect storm, that ulcer means that there's like a very, it's eroded and then therefore it can go pop right through it. So you could get a perforation, which could lead to, it's just like a leak. It's something where the dirty stuff inside the GI tract is now in the abdominal cavity. So you, you definitely don't want that. Now, another issue that could happen with a bypass is something called an internal hernia. So internal hernias mean that there is a man or woman made defect where I bring up your small intestine to hook it up to that little stomach pouch. And there's a space behind there where the intestines could travel and they can get stuck sort of in the left upper quadrant where they don't belong. They peristalse like madness to try to get back to where they belong, but they're kind of like stuck in this hernia, this hole that's internally within you. So if that happens, there's very characteristic CT scan findings. There's very characteristic symptomatology to it. It feels like you have this intense wave-like pain that comes and it goes. And you um, you feel this way. And if you tell me that, especially if you say it just bears into my back, it's not back pain. It's that you have this internal hernia. And every time it peristalsis, especially after you eat, that will kind of start to, that movement towards, you know, to get things out, then that would require a typically laparoscopic, but a surgical intervention to get the intestines, put them back where they belong, and then reclose that with permanent suture, that defect area. So that is um, that is the internal hernia. So that can happen. And, there, and like I said, there's CT scan findings. I call it a swirl sign. You might see like the intestines are kinked on themselves. You might even have your lymphatics are obstructed. So you might even get this like white caking. Some inter- the body is an interesting thing. As you can tell, I love the body. I it love really the human is body. Interesting. It's so it's so crazy. And like it's always funny when you talk about like CT scans and stuff, because most of us look at them and it's like, what am I looking at? And you're like, Yeah, there's this, there's that, that's the swirl, that's the this, that's the and I'm like, mm-hmm. Looks nice. Like it's so it's pretty. funny because you do so many surgeries and when you look at the scan, you know exactly like you have x-ray vision to think about, okay, what that would look like inside the abdomen. And like in 3D. Yeah. yeah. That translate translation of like 2D to 3D and like in your mind. Yeah. And it's something that I look at so commonly, like most radiologists know it, but once in a while they're fixated on, they have a very systematic process to how they interpret these scans. And they start off with like heart, lungs, uh, stomach organ, gallbladder, liver, and they kind of go in order. 
but I'm looking like so precisely for my like my bread and butter potential issues that if you're having ongoing issues, you can always have those images re-looked at by a bariatric surgeon because we have the eye for all of these little nuances to yeah. see if there's anything going on. Or they could always we could always do like a diagnostic laparoscopy where I just go back in surgically and I just look around the abdomen. Yeah. So that would be, you know, something else there as well. Now, um, that this is all, you know, probably frightening to some of you out there that, um, oh my gosh, I mean, I could get twisted, I could get reflux, like I could get a de- vitamin deficiency. Again, when you're compliant in these things, no worries. And a lot of these things, if it were to happen, like, for example, the internal hernia, that's only like one in every 300 gastric bypasses that happen. So it's still exceedingly rare for that to happen. And there is, I'm trying to think, like what other complications? Oh, the band. So I just wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about that. So some of you have the band and you have been living for a long time with chronic abdominal pain, with acid reflux, with nausea, and even vomiting still after this. And that band in theory was a good idea. But the problem is sometimes that band is so tight that you can't even be compliant with a high protein diet because it just causes things to sit there, regurgitate up. The band can slip. The band port can twist. The tubing can become disconnected. The band can erode into the stomach. The band can cause aspiration. The band can cause a whole host of issues. So if you have a lap band and you have any issues, stop living with this thing. Let's come in. Let's remove it and let's revise it to a gastric bypass. And that is extremely important to, or at the very least, just have the band removed if it's bothering you. Um, Because sometimes the body sees it as a foreign body because it's a piece of plastic and you could get a chronic inflammatory state. So I do believe that those autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, I actually think that those are worsened when you have a band. That's my anecdotal thoughts, but yeah. I've seen this over and over again from the chronic inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. The foreign body in there is always such like an interesting concept because your body's always going to attack what it sees as foreign. You know, it doesn't want that in there. Exactly. So you mentioned earlier, too, the vertical sleeve. The vertical. No. Ba- the, ver- the vertical banded gastroplasty. There we go. So VBG. It's not the vertical sleeve gastrectomy. This is VSG. This is the vertical banded gastroplasty. So this is something that has a non-adjustable gastric band and a staple line that's staple, but it doesn't cut it. So it would like put a little band and then it was staple vertical. You can Google it. So some of you might have it. These were, this was a commonly performed procedure. It's called like stomach stapling. Mm -hmm. This was done typically open to big, huge up and down incisions. And it was done in the nineties. So if you had weight loss surgery in the nineties, you probably had stomach stapling. This thing causes horrific acid reflux and just horrific ongoing issues. And if you have that, you would also need to have that revised to a gastric bypass. I've done a few of those in my career and the patients are just so immensely, immensely better after that procedure. Yeah. Just that quality of life improvement there with getting that. Absolutely. I, now I want to look up that one too. I'm yeah. I know there's so many different nuances. There's all the kinds of other new procedures. There's older procedures. I mean, weight loss surgery field is not new. It's been around for 50, 60, 70 years. Right. Well, it's interesting because it's not new, but it's sometimes for some people, it just still seems so novel. Totally. You know, and again, we've talked about like, what, less than 1% of eligible patients are getting it. And it's like, it's been proven to be safe. And I think, again, we're talking about these side effects and, and mentioning them because it's always worth knowing the potential complications, A, so that you're well-informed and you know, you know, 
what what can happen, but also so you can go and educate it about how do we prevent them? What's the best things to do to make sure that I'm successful? Um, you know, choosing, even just thinking about choosing which surgery I'm going to go. Maybe I've had my heart set on, on sleeve, but now you're like, well, I've had GERD my whole life. Like right. I, I'm, I want to get rid of this. And, and so maybe that's just something to consider. So you know, I, I think that we always talk about complications and people get really scared, but part of it is just, it's just education. It's not to scare anybody and it's not to dissuade anybody from doing this, but just knowing knowing the potential outcomes is important. Yeah, no doubt about it. And again, if you ever feel like something's going on, something's not right, I've been doing awesome and all of a sudden I'm just not feeling well. I have abdominal pain. I'm having reflux. I just feel numbness and tingling. Anything that's of question, trust your bodies. Always seek the, the medical attention and keep being an advocate for yourself until you get the answers that you need, the properly workup, which includes imaging studies, different labs. You know, there's a whole host of things that you can do mm-hmm. to make sure, okay, it's all good. Maybe you just were constipated, which can be a real thing as well. Oh, yeah. Always coming back to constipation. Always coming back to poop with us, the <laughs> two of us. Boy, we're some classy gals here. We are. All right. Any final words on complications from any of the uh, can't talk any of the bariatric surgeries? No, I think um, just educate yourself and um, just again the final thoughts are: don't live in fear, don't live in panic that behind the bend something's going to happen to you. You're all good. We can reassure you, or we can work it up. But um, just be confident in your decision, and hopefully you're living a a completely flawless recovery, and um, that's what we hope for you. And that's what the odds show that you'll have. Absolutely, yes. All right. Well, if you have any questions, anything you want to hear from us uh, or just want to check us out, please, we are at Dr. X Dietitian on Instagram. We'd love to have you there. And thanks for joining. We'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks, guys. 